Uh, good morning. Uh, for those of you who have not been here before, I'm Ben Spivey. Like Brian said, I'm the campus pastor for RUF here in town. Uh, the Lynchburg branch of it, that is, there are RUFs all over the country, but um, you got stuck with me as the head of the local branch. Um, my name is Ben Spivey, and my wife says I'm not funny, so I'll try not to make any more jokes. That was it like 30 seconds ago. Okay. Um, just so you don't just so you do know what RUF is, uh, RUF is the campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. So locally here, we're connected with Mercy and with Boonesboro Prez on the other side of town. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm here to meet with students. I'm here because churches in this part of Virginia love students and, and want someone to be walking with you, um, not just to come and teach you, but to walk alongside you, uh, befriend you, and see what God's Word has to say about life, see what it's like to live life as a Christian. Um, so we have ways that that takes place. Uh, first, I would love to meet with you. And maybe you saw one of my cards in the uh, bulletin. That's what that thing is called. Um, I forgot to bring any more of those. If you didn't get one, please come say hi to me. I'd love to meet with you. You can get my number. I can get yours. We can have coffee or lunch. Uh, but we also have uh, small groups where you can connect with other students. We study scriptures together, uh, have time to fellowship with each other. And one of those is going to be taking place actually at my house tomorrow night at 7.30. Uh, Lord willing, the uh, recent surge of the virus kind of dies down. We'll, we'll do our best to meet outside as we can and all that. But uh, we're going to continue to meet at my house for Bible study on 7.30s at 7.30 on Mondays. Uh, and then Tuesday nights, we also have what we call our large group meeting, and that's at 7.30 on Liberty's campus. And you can find more information about all that on our website, on Instagram, or you can just talk to me. Okay, so we're going to be uh, continuing in Luke this morning, as we have been. And I have the privilege of preaching to you on Luke 15 it's a well-known passage. Uh, let's pray before we begin here. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have revealed your son and yourself in him in this passage before us. Give us your Holy Spirit to believe it. To walk around like we believe it. Get it in our bones, Lord. Help us to really believe that this is who Jesus is. That this is how faith works, that this is who you are. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he, come to, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, 
Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Um, If you really want to follow along with an outline, I probably am not going to reference it a whole lot, but the two main points today are going to be God's heart for prodigals, and warning to the self-righteous. And I'll try to tell you when we move on to the second point, if I remember. Uh, Y'all, this is not a hard passage to understand. Uh, We love in our Presbyterian churches to do lots of exegesis and explanation of the text, and we, we should. Sometimes some passages are really hard to understand, but this one's not hard to understand. There's not a whole lot to unpack in the language. There are some things that help us see what's going on here in a little bit more depth, but Maybe more than anything, today you need to like open up your feelings box and feel some feels and see what God is like in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just think about it, but see him, behold him, gaze at him, and take this in. Uh, This isn't a one-to-one allegory, and it's not a complex series of arguments, It's just a beautiful story designed to show how God loves people. 
And that's pretty much it. Like I said, this isn't hard. God loves sinners. That's the gist of this whole passage. All three of these parables tell us that God loves sinners and he seeks them out. Um, At first, as I was preparing for this sermon, I kind of thought, like, this is Luke 15. This is kind of easy. And then as I was writing it uh, and got more into writing it, I thought, uh, I, I don't think I can do this passage any justice. I've never preached a gospel as free or liberal as Jesus Christ has preached, as free or liberal as he has lived. I can't do this passage justice. I'm not sure that I've ever, I I pray that maybe one day I will really, truly, clearly preach Christ as he is towards sinners. Um, that, that's what's at the heart of all of these parables. That's it. Christ has come to seek out the lost. They teach us that Jesus searches out sinners, right? He's not standing back unconcerned about what happens to humans. God is not on the other side of the infinite void, infinite chasm between creature and creator, just kind of like shouting out some advice to us about how to get to heaven. His own son has entered history. He's come into our world to seek us out. So all of these have this in common, uh, that something is lost and the one who values it looks for it and rejoices over it when he finds it or when she finds it. A sheep, a coin, and finally a person, and maybe in some way we'll... uh, We'll mention this again later. We even see kind of this rising value in the things being searched for because the son of this father is obviously very precious to him. Uh, One of the things we should think about as we are trying to do some work of interpretation with this parable, with these parables, is just simply the context. Who's speaking? Who's being spoken to? Right? The person speaking is Jesus. God himself, we've got to remember that. Second person of the Trinity entered from eternity into our world, came into human history, took on flesh, still has human flesh. And he's sitting around a bunch of notorious sinners, people who are well-known and very much disliked by the religious people of their day. And the context is the presence of these tax collectors and sinners and the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. They are actually upset that Jesus is doing exactly what he came to do. They get mad that he receives sinners and eats with them. They're mad that he would look on people with love and have mercy on them. They're mad about that. To eat with someone in this culture... um, This is a little bit more context. Uh, It was like admitting them into full friendship. It's like associating with them. Uh, If we were going to put it in terms of dating, uh, you know, getting coffee with someone for like 30 minutes is a first date. Getting dinner for the third time in a week, you're together, okay? You're an item now. And Jesus is not just like kind of passing by people in the streets. It says sinners... And tax collectors, they keep coming to him is kind of the idea of the verbs here. And he just keeps receiving them. And he eats with them. He fellowships with them. 
gladly. And they're glad about it, too. So, um, they're glad about it, and the Pharisees are not. Uh, but we'll get to that in our second point. Uh, sinners, by the way, just to kind of press home this point a, a little bit more before we get a little bit further into it. Sinners is, is often used in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, to refer to people who are sexually immoral. That's not everything there is to this word. It's not everything that's going on here, but likely at least some sort of sexually immoral crowd is, is being lumped into this group of people who keep coming to Jesus. Known prostitutes, people who have been shamed and cast out and cast to the side. And so if we were going to try to put this a little bit more into modern ideas, it would probably be like Jesus, Son of God, sitting down with uh, prostitutes, that one's not hard to put into modern ideas. And then these tax collectors, they're kind of like government-sanctioned, government-empowered loan sharks. They're people that nobody likes. They're people that have truly done wrong. They're not just like, they're not just pitiable. Right? It's not like it's really, really easy for the Pharisees even maybe to see that Jesus just pities them. They're actually bad people. Like, they've actually decided for themselves, chosen to do things. And then it seems likely what has happened here is they've gone a lot farther than maybe they ever wanted to and ended up in places they didn't want to be. It's not to say nobody else played a role in their lives, but they've made their own choices. So these sinners and tax collectors just keep coming to Jesus, and he just keeps eating with them, receiving them. He's kicking it with them. And the Pharisees see this and they think, this guy can't be a prophet or a teacher in Israel. Look at who he hangs out with. And in response, Jesus doesn't yell at them. He doesn't chase them off. He just tries to paint a picture for them of the goodness of God. He says, in a sense, who did you think God would hang out with? What did you expect God to do about people who need him? So he puts the question to them, if you lost one sheep out of a hundred, wouldn't you look for it? No shepherd is going to say, ah, I've got 99. That's enough meat and wool. I'm okay. No. The shepherd goes and looks until he finds it. And no woman loses a silver coin and says, nine will do. That still buys a lot of pizza. No, she's going to sweep the house and light a lamp and look for it until she finds it. But then more important than anything, a real person is lost. And these are real people sitting in front of the Pharisees and scribes. Right? And like we said, perhaps the value is reflected in the numbers given in each parable. One out of a hundred sheep and one out of ten coins. And then one son out of two. And really two sons out of two are at stake here. Real people. So again, each of these teaches the same main point. Uh, but we're going to focus on the third one, the, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called. And maybe as you'll see, it, it could very well be called the parable of the two sons. 
Uh, so the younger of two sons comes to his father, and he basically says, I'm done with you, Dad. Can I have my inheritance now? Because I'm out. I don't need you. I don't love you. I'm gone. And he goes and wastes everything that his dad gave him with frivolous living, right? With, with prodigal living, wastefully. And then a famine comes. And he has nothing left to eat, no money to buy food or clothing with. He can't find work and nobody will give him anything. And all that's left to him is to feed pigs. A humiliating and disgusting job for a Jew. And he's feeding them, wishing he could just eat what they're eating because he's so hungry. But eventually he says... And he, he comes to himself, as the text says, what am I doing? Even the servants in my father's house have more than enough to eat. I've been a fool and a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And I'm going to go back to my dad and just ask to be made a servant because I'll be better off like that. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. And he gets almost home to confess his wrongdoing. And who's looking for him? His dad has been looking out for him the whole time. I like to think his dad kind of sits on the porch every evening hoping he'll see him. And he can't even wait for him to get home and confess. He runs out to him to greet him. And he grabs him up and starts kissing him. This is the heart of God for us. This is the heart of God for people. That he doesn't wait, he runs to us. Look, he didn't need an apology. He didn't ask for one. He just runs This old, respectable Jewish man, you know, probably is wealthy. He's got fattened calves ready and servants. And he's probably dignified. And he says, whatever. My son is home. And then when the son starts confessing, the dad just doesn't even talk to him. He just calls back into the house. Get the fattened calf ready. Bring a robe and a ring and shoes. My boy is home. Jesus is telling us what his love for sinners is like. is big and free. He's that dad that runs out to meet his son. He's the one sitting around the tax collectors and sinners. The parable is a little bit different here. The the parable of the prodigal son than the first two. Uh, The dad didn't look for his son in the same way that the, the person who owned the sheep looked for the sheep and the woman who owned the coin looked for the coin. It's more human and more complex than that. But we get the idea that he's been waiting and we see his compassion grows within him and he runs to greet his son and just grabs him up in his arms and he's ready to throw a party for him right then. And Jesus wants everyone present, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes, to see how God loves people, how he loves sinners, which we all are. He wants them to see that God's love is prodigal. It's excessive. It's abounding. It's being poured out. Okay. Um, First, this guy's not just any dad. Right? Kids, you, you might understand this if you've seen one of the best movies of all time, Finding Nemo. Jesus 
is like Marlon, the dad from Finding Nemo. His son is a complete, he, at the beginning of the movie, I'm not sure the nice way to say it. Um, you, know, you know how Nemo is, right? He gets mad at his dad at the beginning of the movie and he wants to show his dad that he can rebel and that he doesn't need him and he swims out to touch the butt, I mean boat. That makes sense if you've seen the movie, I hope. Okay. Um, and when his son disappears, Marlin, this daddy fish, he doesn't go, got what he deserved. Maybe he'll come back one day. He doesn't go hang out in his anemone and, you know, hope Nemo shows up again. Oh, that'd be okay, but I'll, I'll be all right without him. He swims throughout the whole ocean looking for his little boy. He doesn't settle for anything. He doesn't stop short. That's God's love for us. Jesus didn't wait for us to find some way to heaven because it never would have happened. He came to earth to find us. All right, and look at this. Uh, in every story, story, there's a party for the thing found. Right? In, in the first two parables here with the sheep and the coin, uh, Jesus says that angels in heaven rejoice when just one sinner repents. Just one. God isn't just honoring the terms of a contract or something. He's not smiling and nodding through Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> right? He opens the door and his boy is home and he shouts back into the house, get out the good wine, start cutting the turkey. My boy's home. My daughter's just come back after all these years. Someone put on some music. He's excited. And if you don't believe in Jesus right now, please don't let anything hold you back from coming to him, from putting all your hope in him, from letting go of everything else that's disappointed you and frustrated you. You can trust him entirely to be everything you need before God. And when you think, but I don't have anything to offer, remember that he's not asking you to bring anything. When you think, but he doesn't want me, Remember that he's searching for you and sent his only son for you. And if you dislike the idea of repentance, right, you want, you want to keep sleeping with your boyfriend, you want to identify in a particular way that you know is unpopular and contrary to scripture, uh, you don't want to share with your sister, maybe if you're a kid, maybe you don't want to forgive your dad. There are about a million things human beings need to repent from. Well, for all that, will you consider that you might be able to trust the one who celebrates your homecoming? If you think, if God loves me so much, why do I have to change? First, make sure you understand the, the biblical idea of repentance. What does it actually mean to repent in the Bible? Of first importance for understanding what repentance is in Scripture, it's turning away from something and turning to God. That is primary in Scripture. It's, it's big picture. Before we even get into the nitty-gritty, it is turning toward God. Away from sin, away from other hopes, away from anything that would take God's place in your life. Repentance is the action of trust. 
And second, the change you're probably thinking of, if repentance is the issue, uh, that will come from being with God. Even repentance is a gift to hard-hearted sinners. It's not meant to earn you anything. It's not meant to make God love you. He already does. He's already given you freely in Jesus Christ. And third, coming back to this, if you do have to change, do you think you can trust the one telling you to change when you consider how happy he is just that you're home? When you consider that he came to seek you out, you didn't have to earn anything, you didn't have to prove anything. When you get down into the details and consider all the things that he's going to do in your life and he's going to do them, even while sometimes you kick and scream against the change he brings, do you think you can trust the one who came to seek you out? The parable doesn't say that the father saw the son coming a long way off and demanded proof that he was living a more responsible life. He ran, he hugged, he celebrated because his boy was home. If you're hesitant to come to God, just consider what the parable teaches you about who God is. The Bishop J.C. Ryle commented on this parable saying this, He, God, is more willing to save sinners than they are to be saved. You might be hesitant about him, but I'm telling you right now, he is not hesitant about you. Christian, maybe you're wondering what this means for you. This vision of Christ means a lot. The way he has revealed himself means a lot for Christians. It means the daily life of repentance can be lived out in confidence and joy because you've seen what God is like. You've seen what he does to repentant sinners. It means you never have to hesitate to turn to God. It teaches us about God that his love for us is free and liberal and just overpouring like we said before. What it teaches us about God can be the very foundation of our lives. Can give you freedom. That's what it can do for you, Christian. But then also in those times in your life when you've found that you've been down a road for several weeks now, and maybe you've come to your mind and realized what a state you're in, or you've been going several years now, or you've been doing some things you know you shouldn't, whatever it is, let the words of Marcus Mumford comfort you. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start, every turn of repentance, is met with an embrace from God. It's not about, look, look this, is, this is what the difference can be for you. This is what can change your heart in the way that you function in life. This is what changes the theology you actually live by is when you see God like this, when you realize that every start back toward him, every turn, every step down the road toward God is met with God himself. What joy and confidence can that bring? You don't have to travel down the road to meet him. You don't have to prove anything 
He's always there. He's pursuing you, and he is just waiting for you to turn around. Okay, but there is more. Like I said, this is a parable of two sons, really. Um, so this is our second point. Uh, the warning to the self-righteous. So there's the other son. There's the son who's jealous and without love. His brother has been estranged from the family. And yet, he's mad that his dad is throwing him a party for coming home. He's mad that his dad never threw him a party with his friends or gave him a goat to go off and have a party with his friends. Forget the dad. He doesn't, he doesn't need him either. It should be clear, I think, that the older brother is the scribes and Pharisees. And what they need to see, maybe what you need to see, is that the younger brother was far from his dad in physical distance and in his behavior, but the older brother was far from his father in his heart. When his brother came home, he complained about not getting to party with his friends, and he wasn't even concerned about partying with his father. He's not, he, he shows no natural love toward his family. Instead of rejoicing all these years and being with his father the whole time, he just comes in and he's mad about somebody else getting to be happy for a little while. The scribes and Pharisees are upset that Jesus is not acting as holy as they act. And maybe they're jealous that he's paying attention to these other people. They think that Jesus is a lawbreaker. They think he's unholy. They think he doesn't recognize who the godly people are and who he should be hanging out with. But they have failed to include mercy, compassion, and love in their definition of holiness. That's a big part of the Bible's definition. They have failed to understand God's law, the very heart of which is love. They're actually the ones who have missed the full demands of God's law. They don't understand. So of course, we have some searching to do. What does this tell us about ourselves? Have we misunderstood? Do we see in our actions a lack of joy for the good of others? A lack of rejoicing in the goodness of God? A lack of belief in the goodness of God? Are we the older brother? Are we far from God in our hearts? Do you do things that Christians do but have no love for God? No joy in His presence? No compassion for other people. Please remember the Bible tells us clearly if you say you love God but don't love your brother, you're a liar. The last time you heard of someone converting, did you want to celebrate even a little bit? I'd ask myself this too. This one hurts. Did you want to celebrate even just like a little bit? Did you think about it throughout the day when you heard of somebody converting? Did you understand that they had gone from death to life like the Father says here in this parable? 
What about this? I've said sinners, that word sinners, over and over again today. Who did you think of when I said it? If you weren't in the mix of the people included in that word, maybe you need to do some searching here. Maybe you need to think for a bit about which son you are what you believe about God and where you stand in relation to Him. Do you find in yourself a tendency to try and impress God? Are you concerned about performing for Him? Are you hurt when He doesn't give you what you want? Or when bad things continue to happen to you, even though you've been living your life for Him all these years? Okay, and what do you do if you said yes to any of these questions? Well, if we look back at the parable, we'll see it's the same father who ran to meet the prodigal son that comes out to entreat the older son. He says, come in. Come, celebrate with us. I am still inviting you. Don't be mad. Come. Come in. Come, celebrate. Rejoice with us. It's not too late for you. God's love is overflowing for you too. If you are the legalist, or the older brother, God loves you too. The father in this parable went out to both sons, and what is different about them is not the father's love for them. Sometimes we get that crazy idea that, like, if I'm a legalist, maybe I'm too hard-hearted. I don't know, whatever. Sometimes that happens in Christian circles. The difference is not whether or not the Father loves them. It's not his willingness to come to them, but it's their willingness to come to him. It's if they will receive his embrace, if they will turn to him. So what you do is admit to yourself that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy. That's what you do. This is the gospel to those in the church and outside of it. This is the gospel to those who think they can't repent or don't want to repent. This is the gospel to the hard-hearted and to those who know and feel that they are hard from, far from God. Let's ask God to help us believe it. Um, we'll pray and then sing in response. We'll be taking the offering uh, shortly after. Holy Father, please give us your spirit to believe this. Please help us, Lord. We know the truths that it says. We know, um, many of us know a lot of the things the Bible says. But we need to believe it. We need it to be in us. We need to understand it with our minds and embrace it with our hearts. We need your help to feel it how we should. To respond how we should. To repent and turn away from the things that keep us from you. We need your Holy Spirit to show us Jesus Christ and impress him on us. 
Help us to see him and believe him. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.